Hey everyone, this is Melissa and I'm going to be your host for today's episode. I'm really excited because today we're going to be talking about something that we haven't discussed before on the show, and that's medical education. Doctors are a critical part of society, and we want to be confident that they're taught and assessed on everything they need to know to be good at what they do, provide excellent medical care. On today's episode, you're going to hear all about how medical learners are assessed on professionalism, a competency that often takes a backseat to medical knowledge and skills, but is equally important. Here to talk about her work on this subject is Dr. Schiffer Ginsberg, Director of the Elliot Phillipson Clinician Educator Training Program and Director of the Education Research and Scholarship in the Department of Medicine. She's a staff physician at Mount Sinai Hospital, Professor of Respirology at the University of Toronto, and scientist at the Wilson Center for Research and Education. She also has a Master's in Education and just last year completed her PhD, an endeavor that fundamentally changed the focus of the research program she's built over the last 15 years but I'll let her tell you more about that. Welcome to Raw Talk. People will listen to this. Yeah. We, nobody knows. My mother. Yeah. Yeah. Are you going to send it to your mother? Of course. Is she electronically savvy? No, not at all. Does then she have I'll have a computer? To, yes, then I'll have to go to her house and show her how to listen to an and audio file. And listen to it with her, <laughs> and then she'll listen to you talk, and then you'll be like, no, don't listen to You're me. Right. <laughs> okay, so thank you for joining us today, Dr. Ginsberg. My pleasure. Uh, so we really like to start off with an origin story. Oh. So before we talk about your research and your educational history, can you talk a little bit about how and why you got into medicine. So you've said before that it's a bit of an accident, and yeah. can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, um, I'm, I'm the perfect example of the imposter syndrome. I had actually applied to all the Ontario medical schools and McGill back in the day, and I won't say which day. <laughs> and I got a, a few interviews, and then I got on a few wait lists. So I didn't get accepted anywhere right away. And that entire summer, and this was before the internet, uh, <laughs> I would rush home from work every day and see if there's an envelope And uh, it was a really stressful summer. And then I finally got into one university that was not my first choice, but I was still so excited by then to have gotten in. Um, My first choice was actually McGill. And then one Thursday afternoon, I was at work and I got a phone call from McGill saying that they had had registration that morning and one student hadn't shown up. And it turns out she had gone somewhere else. And I was the next person on the list. And would I like to attend McGill Medical School? Oh, my goodness. So I quit my job (laughs) and I called my parents and... Uh, We drove to the other city and got all my stuff and drove to Montreal and I started school on Monday. My picture in the first year sort of class composite is in with the letter K instead of the letter G because I was like literally taking someone else's spot that was supposed to be there. Wow. So you got in the day that school started? Day, yeah. That's amazing. day of registration, yeah. And you hit the ground running and you haven't looked back ever since. That's right. That's amazing. I look back a lot, but you know. Yeah, I always had that feeling of at some point someone's going to tap me on the shoulder and say, oh, it's okay, she's back now, Yeah, you can go. Um, but yeah, so it was it was a very exciting start to medical school, for That's sure. That's awesome. Yeah. And so do you want to talk a little bit about, um, you're now an internist mm-hmm. uh, here at Mount Sinai, um, so how did you decide to go into internal medicine and respirology? Yeah, I always really liked internal medicine because, and I'm sure this is something you would hear from any internist, we always like the sort of diagnostic dilemmas and the mysteries and a lot of what you can um, learn from patients is by taking a really good careful history and I really like listening to people and hearing their stories and so that really appealed to me. It's interesting about respirology, though, because that was actually probably my last choice coming out of medical school. So here's more lessons on keep an open mind. 
it wasn't the best taught thing and I had actually put it as my least desired specialty at one point. But then during my residency, I worked with some amazing people and I suddenly found everything sort of clicking in respirology and I liked the physiology and the infectious disease and the the fact that it's part of a lot of multi-system diseases. And you can mm. actually maybe not cure so many people, but you can really improve a lot of people's quality of life with good treatment. And suddenly I found myself applying to respirology. Mm-hmm. And so you did your internal medicine residency here in Toronto. I did internal medicine here. I did my respirology and critical care ICU training at McMaster. And then I came back to Toronto as a clinical associate, which is kind of like a junior staff position mm-hmm. um, before coming on faculty And that's when I decided to do a master's of education, not with the goal of being a researcher, but with the goal of being an excellent clinician teacher. Was being an educator always something that you were passionate about? Yeah, I always really liked teaching. I did tutoring in math, um, in high school and in university and camp counselor and Mm. those kinds, kinds of things. And I always really liked teaching. So you decided to do your master's in education. How did you decide to start looking at professionalism in medicine. Yeah, so that was, again, another happy accident because I had taken that master's degree at OISE thinking that I wanted to be a really great clinician teacher and I was going to learn all about teaching. And it turns out that's really kind of not Not. what the degree (laughs) is. There's a lot of educational theory and curriculum design and assessment theory and all kinds of other really interesting things that I didn't know that's what I was getting into, but it really caught my imagination. And, and for so, my, yeah, sorry, and for my major you. research project, yeah. again, I was, I was even thinking to forego the thesis option and just do the extra two courses, but something kind of um, sparked my imagination and I decided that I wanted to do at least one scholarly piece before deciding if it was for me or not. Mm-hmm. And so you decided to look at professionalism. Was there any mm-hmm. person in particular who was mentoring you through your master's or anybody you were talking to that you sort of talked through that idea or yeah, got th- you thinking about what really grinded your gears in medicine at the mm-hmm. time? There were, there were a few people, but one that comes to mind is, uh, was my mentor at the time, Glenn Regare, who was one of the first scientists hired at the Wilson Center for Research and Education, um, cognitive psychologist by training. And he just got me thinking about what are some things in, in my sort of clinical and teaching life that were really bugging me. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that was really bugging me was the way we were evaluating professionalism. At the time, I was involved in medical student education and exams, and it struck me as odd that everything else was allowed to be evaluated on sort of a graded five-point scale, like your knowledge and your clinical skills and your communication skills, but professionalism was only a yes or a no, either you're professional or you're not. And, And I didn't know why that was, and when I would ask people, they would either say, I don't know, it's always been that way, or you're either professional or you're not. There's no mm-hmm. gray zone. And I thought, well, that can't be right. Mm-hmm. And so Glenn encouraged me to do some uh, reading and thinking, and I really didn't want to do research. And so it was more that I was just really driven by this dilemma. I didn't understand why we were doing things the way we were doing it. And the way to start answering that was to do a little bit of research. And one little project led to another and led to another. And then I got some grants and it just kind of spiraled from there. So maybe in your own words, why is professionalism in health? I mean, intuitively, we know why it's important in healthcare, but Mm -hmm. why is it so important in healthcare? It sort of depends on what you really think is what it means to say professionalism. It's kind of the, the code of conduct 
that professions have to deal with each other and with the public and with their patients or clients. There's an element of a social contract. There's an element of a great deal of trust between the profession and the people it deals with. And all of that is just critically important to good, safe, equitable medical care. But the other parts of it as well is that there's a lot of challenges to our professionalism. Any, even the, the best, most compassionate, awesome doctor in the world is going to have things arise in their day-to-day practice that may challenge their ability to behave professionally, either something in the system or something about a particular patient or getting a request for something that's inappropriate or being given a gift that's yeah. inappropriate. It's nothing that you've done, but you're suddenly put in this situation where you have to deal with it. And I really... I think that teaching medical students and residents and all of our learners to develop an approach to dealing with challenges to their professionalism, just like we teach you to have an approach to a patient that's short of breath, you you have a very basic understanding at the beginning, and it becomes deeper and more nuanced the more you learn and depending what field you go in. Same with professionalism, and I think we should really be explicitly teaching it and not just role modeling it and hoping they pick it up, but Mm -hmm. explicitly teaching approaches to these difficult situations so that if something happens and you're caught off guard, you have a toolbox, you have a set of skills that you can draw on. And so I guess when you started all this research, the idea was that professionalism is was sort of a more abstract concept that you were either professional or you Mm -hmm. weren't, but it isn't really that there's this innate quality of professionalism to someone. It's something, it's a character trait that you can actually acquire slowly and and build over time. Do you want to maybe talk about your early research and some of the fundamental thought processes that had to change at U of T and maybe at other universities as well? Yeah, is that it's interesting that you said I'm um, like a character trait because I think it was often thought of as it's part of your personality and a lot of the research was the early research was really focused on that aspect of it and if you could select better and sort of weed out the bad people, you would have no issues with professionalism. But it's not a character trait. It's like not a person. You aren't meant to show up at medical school. Yes, as a professional. Formed, yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. And it really isn't. Um, in, in rare instances, sure, there's probably some people with, I would say, undesirable uh, character traits in that regard. But most of the issues we see in professionalism on a day-to-day basis are best thought of as probably, you know, good people with good intentions that are in a bad situation and have made some poor choices. They're not inherently bad people. Our first push really a long time ago was to get the evaluation of professionalism to focus on behaviors and not on people and not on attitudes because you can't really know someone's attitude. You have to make a lot of inferences, but you can see the behavior. So it seemed a lot more concrete and objective. And so the very early changes we made here at U of T were to change all of the professional evaluations into a behavior-based system. And so there, there were two aspects of that. One is it was very educational, because if we're saying altruism is this, 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 and this, these are the behaviors, then um, people will start to learn what we mean by these terms. Then so what would be an example of mm-hmm. altruism in the Yeah, clinic? so, you know, putting your patient first, not leaving your patients hanging because you want to go take lunch, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It, and it was graded, right? So the early students, pre-clerkship years one and two, had different behavioral definitions because at that point it was also about being present for your classmates Mm -hmm. and doing your part in your small group sessions and that sort of thing. So it was really graded to the stage of training that people were at to make it more relevant and meaningful. And so it had that educational purpose and it was also 
we were hoping it would be less difficult because you're not saying, hey, you're a bad person. You're saying, hey, you did this thing. You didn't respond to your pages on time. Mm -hmm. That's a behavior we can talk about rather than saying you're irresponsible, mm -hmm. which is maybe the thing you might want to say, but not that helpful in yeah. terms of giving feedback and making behavior change. So you kind of raised two points, I guess. So one person is not professional at all times. Mm -hmm. There are always even, do you still see this in the clinic today where staff acts in an unprofessional way or it gets better over time, but somebody is not defined as being professional? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> we all have bad no, days. You don't have to yes. give an explicit story. <laughs> no names just, mentioned. Yeah. Uh, we all have bad days, right? Yeah. Like even, I was thinking just in, in thinking about this interview today, you know, over the summer, I had a, a day where I felt like, wow, there was a very difficult uh, patient situation. And somehow, it just pushed all my buttons, like in a bad way. And I was just not at my best. And I felt like I got defensive while I was talking to the patient, I was trying to defend my residence, and it just did not go well. Mm -hmm. And I went home after that thinking, huh, I wonder what I role modeled today. Yeah. Like if my if my team, my residents and my students, if that was the first day they were meeting me, what must they think of me now? Mm -hmm. So I went in the next day, and I thought I would may as well be explicit about it. And I actually said, I was not at my best yesterday. If I could have a do-over, this is how I would have approached that situation in a more reasoned way. You know, I guess I was sort of self-disclosing and just saying I did not feel good about that and that's not how I usually like to act. And what do you guys think about that? Mm -hmm. And how can we do better if we have a similar situation? And so it happens to all of us. Mm -hmm. And would you encourage medical students to do the same thing? So. Yeah, and we do And we do that. We have... Um, reflective writing course that um, is called the portfolio course and it's now in all four years of medical school to get our students used to thinking about things and reflecting and writing I think it's having a, a good impact I enjoy tutoring those or facilitating those groups yeah wonderful um, so then the other thing is how do you get physicians because I know that this is also sort of an issue how do you accurately assess professionalism right so how do you get staff and mentors to the students to accurately assess them yeah, that's a really good question. Assessment is always tricky because assessment involves judgment and the way we judge other people's behaviors is not always appropriate. We learned pretty early on when we thought that just looking at behaviors was going to be the key to good assessment and professionalism. We then realized through a series of other studies that just looking at the behavior is inadequate because we make a lot of assumptions about why people have acted. So if someone, let's say, lies over the phone, they're trying to get a test done quickly for a patient, and they're on the phone with radiology, and they may exaggerate the symptoms in order to get a test done early, hmm, is that unprofessional? So then you start taking it all apart. Maybe that person actually saw their resident do that 10 times, that rotation, and they mm -hmm. just thought that was the way that was done. Or maybe they think this is what patient advocacy is. That's right. Mm -hmm. I was doing it for the good of my patient, not thinking about what that does to the system. If mm -hmm. everyone uh, sort of like, it's like grade inflation or upselling, mm -hmm. if everyone is making things sound worse than they are to get tests done earlier, then that defeats the whole purpose of having urgent tests. Mm -hmm. So there, you know, there's a whole bunch of reasons why uh, may, and maybe that that student had a bad personal experience with a family member that didn't get a test on time and they were being driven by something else so if we focus only on the behavior and not what's underlying the behavior we're missing out on why the person acted that way and then you can't really you know and and the other 
the other side to that is if they do the right thing but for the wrong reason, you don't want to necessarily reinforce that behavior because you want to know that they're going to do it you know, the same way or a better way another time. So I think what we learned is that you have to look at the behavior absolutely, but you also have to look at what's underlying the behavior and look at the um, intentions and motivations and make sure that people are acting based on best principles and always thinking about, you know, putting the patient first. Would you say that, that those assessments happen more accurately now or? You know, that's a tough <laughs> question. Um, I do think that we've come a long, long way that so, we're not labeling people as good or bad people, that we are focusing on the behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, the re- remediation also focuses on the behavior mm-hmm. and on uh, often on reflection and trying to uh, get people to understand the impact of their behaviors on other people. So that's come a long way. It's not just you're a bad apple, let's kick you out of medical mm-hmm. school. So, but what are some of the, I guess, the challenges that you guys face in evaluating students? Because it's not easy if you know someone for two weeks mm-hmm. um, and then they go off and you're supposed to fill out an assessment on mm-hmm. them. You've gotten to know them, right? So That's right. We also get feedback from other people. We get feedback from, let's say it's a medical student. We would get a lot of feedback from the residents on the team, uh, from other staff that may have worked with mm-hmm. that student. You get a lot of feedback, solicited or not, from the nurses and physiotherapists and pharmacists and everyone else that works on the ward. There's a lot of other eyes on that student that you can get feedback from. And in in two weeks, you can actually get to know someone pretty well. And one of the new advances in our entire assessment culture is that we're moving towards something called competency-based medical education, which is more outcomes-based. The Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons, their sort of brand name for it is Competency by Design. And it's all meant to have a lot more direct observation, a lot more on-the-spot feedback, a lot more data gathered Mm -hmm. around uh, specific activities that physicians are expected to be able to do. So it's really transforming completely the way we um, observe, give feedback, assess, document, and then the way we would compile all that. So instead of just one evaluation at the end of a rotation, you may have 50 different evaluation pieces or even more and an exam and something else. And there's ways that people are developing to sort of synthesize that information Mm -hmm. and decide whether someone's ready to move on to the next stage. So it's all being radically transformed literally as we speak. And that's really important, right? Because you need, it's not just one physician that can really Absolutely. assess a student. You need how many different assessments in in one setting to really say this is how the student acted. And I can predict that with, ex- this is this is what we need to be consistent with each student, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing, I guess, is you have these multidisciplinary teams. So you were just saying physiotherapists, nurses, mm-hmm. even the patients themselves to, to an extent are part of that system. Mm-hmm. Do you, have you thought about getting assessments from those people? And then... A follow-up question, I guess, is how are staff assessed, I guess? Are you also assessed on professionalism? Yeah, yeah. So I'll start with the first question. We have not done a good job of including patients in a lot of our medical education research just across the board. You find that a lot of the medical education research studies, uh, at least in assessment, often involve faculty members assessing residents or residents assessing students or students assessing their faculties, you know, mm-hmm. teaching skills and that kind of thing. We rarely include patients. And there's a lot of reasons why, and they're not excuses, but they're issues to be considered. Mm-hmm. For example, if I were going to ask my patients about 
my professionalism, I'd probably ask the ones that I know like mm-hmm. me. Probably going to ask the ones that uh, speak the same language that I do, that come to Mount Sinai Hospital in downtown Toronto, um, that have time to participate in a research study and have the ability to understand and respond to the questions. That's already an extremely select group mm-hmm. of patients. So you couldn't ever possibly say that they would be able to speak or stand in for all patients from all walks of life. Mm-hmm. So that's an issue. I actually have an IMS graduate student named Simon Haney, who Mm -hmm. just started in September. And he, I hope he's listening to this, um, (laughs) is going to be looking at how do we include the patient voice in our professionalism assessments. So it's been a long time coming, but it's coming. And so you've recently gotten a grant for this and you have students working on it. I do, yes. That's exciting. Yes. Um, And then going back to my second question about assessments uh, for staff. Yeah, in the other direction. Yeah, Yeah, our our students and residents have the same type of ability to assess us at the end of every rotation. They have the same kind of form with, you know, five-point scales and a comment box. You know, I spent my PhD work looking at the written comments on the residents' assessments. So what are we as faculty writing about our residents? And not just what we're writing, but how we're writing and how we're sort of framing our language and Mm -hmm. how we hedge a lot and just don't come out and say things. And we use a lot of language that looks kind of vague, but you can sort of decode it and know what people mean. And I've started doing that now with our teacher assessments, because again, it's a really, really rich source of data when you have a lot of people writing. Um, And we don't spend a lot of time looking at the comments usually because it's the scores that kind of count. When I started looking at the teacher assessment comments, I realized a few things. One is the residents, at least in internal medicine, do not appear to be shy about stating when they're unhappy with a teacher, um, to put it mildly, that the teachers that are getting the lower scores on their assessment forms can often have some really negative, critical, and sometimes nasty comments written. Um, wow. Yeah, it's, it's, been, it's been really damaging and hurtful to some people. I think one of the issues is that the residents are anonymous when they fill mm-hmm. out their forms, and we're obviously not, so we're maybe a little can more Can you polite. kind of tell who's written what? No, <laughs> yeah, and that's the thing, is like the residents are pretty well protected. They, uh, we can only see, as, as a clinical teacher on the wards, I can only see my residents' assessments of me once a certain number have been accumulated. And so you can't just say, I worked with one person and there's one new evaluation, I know who it was. They wait and they sort of batch them and you can only look sort of a couple of times a year and then they mix them all together so you don't really know. The, the order is different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, so they do comment and they comment a lot on things that bother them in terms of it, the, the types of professionalism things that come up in faculty tend to be about uh, respectful communication, uh, respect for people's time and those sorts of things. And they really react strongly to to those issues, I think, probably more than anything else. Mm-hmm. Communication and time. You have to think at some point something is going to slip. So yeah. it's you've you've gone through so much training and by sheer fact that nobody is perfect. Mm-hmm. There has to be a time where, you know, like something is happening in your personal life and that comes through in your workplace and it shouldn't. But mm-hmm. that's just sort of the nature of it, right? Yeah. Yeah, I had the the worst evaluations I ever got in my life was when I just came back from maternity leave. Oh, no. I came back uh, probably a little too soon. It was about uh, five months or so. And I did an entire month of team medicine, which is our clinical teaching unit, ward-based medicine. And we would be on call every fourth night and you admit 
15 patients at a time and then have no residents there the next day and a lot of early mornings and late nights. And I was still breastfeeding and up four times a night and really like feeling like maybe I came back too soon, but like my team didn't care. They just expected a fantastic attending physician because this was their like one block of internal medicine or whatever it was. And it was just, it was just terrible. Everyone was unhappy. And I realized that Um, After that, like after that year, I actually went to doing only two weeks at a time instead of a full month at a time. Mm -hmm. You know, having babies and stuff was not terribly conducive to doing internal medicine at the time. I think things are a little better now. But yeah, that was like, if you had only met me then, you would think, how did they even hire this person? Yeah, (laughs) She's exhausted all the time. (laughs) I'm just sleep deprived because I have children. You'll know. (laughs) Yes. I had one of those non-sleeping babies. Oh, no. Yeah the worst ones it's all of them though she grew up okay yeah so hi everyone this is Erin and this is James and we have a very special guest with us today Dr. Lindsay Melvin she's a general internist and also a big advocate for medical education and a clinician teacher and who's also been recently collaborating with Dr. Ginsburg on a project assessing the impact of medical podcasts and we'll get into that a little bit later but in the meantime let's start a bit about yourself and your background maybe and how you got into the field of medical education Great. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Uh, they mentioned I'm Lindsay. I'm a clinician teacher in internal medicine at Toronto Western Hospital. I started out with my interest in medical education very early, so I did my medical school at McMaster University, and my first three years of internal medicine were there. And at the end of my medical school, I started to realize that medical education was something I was really interested in, and I became involved with some projects around curriculum development for the medical students from my medical student class and the ones below, um, and I really enjoyed doing that. And so when I started my residency, I looked for opportunities in education research. And part of the the way that I approached research was looking at the environment that I was in and asking lots of questions and thinking about how we do things in internal medicine and maybe how we can do things better. And that's sort of where my research started. And I got connected with some wonderful mentors. And that was the beginning. And then I did my internal medicine at McMaster, came to Toronto to do my general internal medicine fellowship which is subspecialty training for two years and got connected with the wonderful people here in education and continued doing uh, education research. I then pursued a master's of medical education or master's of health professions education through Maastricht University, which is based in the Netherlands. And it was a distance-based program for two years, which I finished up in May. Congratulations. Thank you very much. And now, yeah, I'm out in in the real world doing uh, clinical work and still asking lots of questions. That's great. Now, as someone who's recently finished uh, your medical education with uh, undergrad, master's, and residency, did you perceive professionalism was evaluated differently than other competencies? That's a great question. I think that professionalism is such an interesting construct in medical education because we have the professionalism, sort of capital P professionalism that we talk about and we get lectures on in medical school and in residency and then you have the you know, more hidden curriculum elements of professionalism that you see on a day-to-day basis. I think that in some ways it is evaluated a bit differently between the way that maybe it's taught and the way that it happens on a day-to-day basis. And I think it's kind of a shifting target as you work with different people and you get to know different people. Now, do you see that there's a lot of room for uh, improvement in how it's evaluated or how you think that it should be? I think 
Um, I think we do a decent job. I think we're constantly moving towards being better no matter what environment that we work in. I think that we can be a little bit better about making some of the elements of what's in the hidden curriculum a little bit more explicit. And some of that definitely touches on professionalism, but it also covers other areas in medical education as well. And I think that addressing some elements of the hidden curriculum would make everything a little bit better in terms of assessment, but that part of why it's in the hidden curriculum. It's hard to capture. So when did you decide to take on a PhD? Because really you were already faculty yeah. at U of T and, and why did you feel that that was important? Yeah. So, I mean, I was already a full professor by the time I did my PhD. And so again, happy accidents and taking nonlinear path have been sort of the hallmarks of my career. Mm-hmm. When I did my master's of education, initially when I first came on staff, as I mentioned, I didn't have any intentions of becoming a researcher. I had actually done a year of research in lab at McMaster. That was a total disaster. What, like lab work? The, yeah, like test tubes <laughs> and all of that stuff. And it was just, it was a disaster. I hated it. It hated me. It was not a good fit. And so the last thing I wanted to do was research. And so when you I did the PTSD. master's, yeah, like it was just like, just like, who would want to do this? It's horrible. It was a slow realization that what I was doing was actually research. It was just, no, this is just really interesting and I want to figure it out. So I'm going to do this little study. And it's like, I I wasn't trying to build a research program. I was just driven by compelling questions. And each new study built on what we did before. So you would do a study and think, wow, that was amazing. Now we need to do the next one. Or that totally didn't work out as we thought. Now let's take a step back and do it in a different way or something different. And so it was just really curiosity driven. And what happened was, you know, I thought about doing a PhD, but I didn't really feel I needed it early on because it was extremely rare for any clinician to have a PhD in education. The master's degree was, quote unquote, enough. And I was getting grants and getting publications. And so I didn't sort of feel the need. But it was um, much later, you know, 15, 20 years later that I was sort of struggling with a new area that I was really starting to get interested in, which was this idea of why are we ignoring all the written comments on the assessments? Mm-hmm. So yeah, I guess it was about 15 years later now that I think about it. But what I realized was that I didn't know enough about how to analyze comments. I needed to learn about language. I needed to learn about how we construct language and how to analyze it. I had done mostly qualitative research. I needed some quantitative component to what I was doing. And I thought, well, if I'm really going to spend the time doing it, I may as well do a PhD. And have protected time to do Have research. protected time. It, it really is, I know it'll sound funny probably to PhD students listening now, but I felt like it was this kind of magic protective bubble that I could use it as a shield to get out of things I didn't want to do. <laughs> um, you know, like, oh, I'd love to be on your committee, but I can't because... And so I really, I used that time to really dive into areas of theory that I I just read for months. People were extremely generous with their time, like colleagues in the field, because I'm doing the PhD in the same field that I'm actually working in. Mm -hmm. People were incredibly generous. If I went to people either way more senior or even way more junior that just had skills that I didn't have to say, you know, can I sit with you for an hour? Can you explain this to me? Can you teach me how to do this? And everyone was just amazing. So it was just a, a wonderful, fantastic experience. And really the point was that I needed to learn some things that I didn't know in order to deepen my work. And so, yeah, that's why I did that. 
So do you want to talk a little bit about your thesis? And of how course I do. In? Yes. Yes. I, I so, defended last September, so it's not that long ago. No, that you're fresh. You're a newly minted peach. It's exactly, yeah. exactly. I look just like all the other students. Yeah, so that was actually really fun. I got interested, as, as mentioned, in the language we use. Initially, it was about the content of the language for sure. Like, what are we writing about our residents? And what does that say about what we think is important for competence, right? Are we writing mostly about clinical skills or about communication skills or professionalism? Turns out we write a lot about things like work ethic, which apparently is really important to us, uh, how hard people work and the effort they put in. We also write a lot about what they're like to work with, pleasure to work with, pleasure to have on the team, great team player. Um, this is people's assessment of professionalism. Mm -hmm. No, this is just their assessment. Here, you've oh. done a month of internal medicine. Here's the comments you get. And so I also got really interested in why we're writing a lot of those other types of comments. And one of my PhD supervisors is Lorelai Lingard, who's a rhetorician. She runs the um, Medical Education Research Unit at Western University. And she got me reading about linguistic pragmatics and politeness theory, which is all about how we use language in a way that helps everyone save face or maintain hmm. face. A lot of the language that we were using in our assessments was very hedgy. And so it sort of underscores the idea that assessment is very face-threatening. So it was just really interesting because it made us rethink how we're telling people how to write comments and a lot of the faculty development on how to write better comments. And you always have to write an area of strength and an area of weakness. But the as human method. beings, yeah, we don't like pointing out people's deficits or weaknesses. It's not polite. They lose face, we lose face. Mm -hmm. And so in a way, it's got us rethinking the purpose of those comments. So rather than telling people stop writing those useless throwaway comments like, oh, she's really pleasant to work with, those are serving some kind of useful social purpose. And so <laughs> some, some social purpose. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. Because we work with it's not like uh, if I work with you, I never see you again. Right. Yeah. You're a, an eventual colleague. Mm -hmm. We work together in different teams and different environments. I've been your supervisor and mentor for a month. Mm -hmm. And then I also have to assess you at the end of that month. So it puts me in a difficult position. So all, all of that. So there's just a lot of reasons why we may write in a way that seems kind of generic and vague and not helpful and it's not really good feedback. But what we've realized is that kind of throwaway language may be actually serving a useful purpose. And so we're kind of rethinking how to write, quote unquote, better assessment comments that will allow people to do that mm -hmm. while still having them maybe write something a little more specific. And so what were some of the outcomes of your PhD or results that were, were you just assessing strictly what the comments were and, mm -hmm. and saying, look, things need to change because this isn't helping anybody and the students aren't getting better? Yeah, yeah. no, what, actually, the odd, the odd thing was that if you use, if you throw away the scores and use just the comments, it was far more reliable as a way mm -hmm. to distinguish between residents. And that was the really interesting thing was that Almost everyone gets a four or five out of five. Over 90% of the evaluations will have a four or five. So you can't really tell people apart just looking at their scores. So nobody uses the bottom half of but the if we, uh, scale? Oh, yeah. Even a three is like, <gasps> you know. Yeah. Is that's, there's a lot of reasons for that that we probably don't have time to get into. But it's just the reality of what yeah. it is right now. And not just at U of T. I think this is a phenomenon probably everywhere. But what we found is if you actually just took the scores off and gave people comments to read... 
and say sort these residents from best to worst just based on their comments, it was extremely reliable. Mm -hmm. Even with only a few comments per resident and even only a couple of people looking at them, you could get far more robust uh, reliability. And so some people have actually argued that we should throw away the numbers Mm -hmm. and only use comments, but then you have to have a system in place that can process and handle that amount of data. Mm-hmm. It and, takes a lot uh, of administrative effort mm-hmm, also, yeah, mm-hmm. I can imagine. Um, I s- want to backtrack a little bit because I think you've, so you previously mentioned when you assess professionalism and you use certain types of language, it's all about work ethic and and I think you've mentioned, oh, I have I have this resident and she's amazing and she always stays over time and, mm-hmm. and all of that. Is that what we think when we think of professionalism or should we yeah. be reevaluating, should people be staying over time to be professional? Mm-hmm. That's a that's a really good question. Um, that was something I had incorporated to some of my um, talks and teaching a few years ago because I had two residents at the same time and one of them was exactly that person. Um, came early, stayed late, always took care of all the details, never wanted to like sign out little things that she could take care of herself, would often stay past our sort of duty hours limits and that sort of thing. And she was amazing with the patients, and she was a great teacher. And I found myself conflicted because on the one hand, I mean, she was amazing. And quite honestly, she made my life really easy that yeah. month. I, 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 she was 100% reliable. And I knew nothing would slip past her and everything. And so I used to often tell her like, oh, my gosh, you've done such a fantastic job. Please go home, yeah. you know. But I realized that what I was probably condoning was that slightly unhealthy behavior Mm -hmm. because is that probably yeah by by the time like she was a third year resident at the time and probably had learned that either this is what you do to get good evaluations or this is what the attending likes so I didn't know anymore was this driven by altruism dedication commitment or was it because she thought that's how you get good a good grade on your rotation or and then you start wondering about hmm, is she okay? Maybe there's something going on at home that she's avoiding home. Maybe she has no friends or family, and so she's like living in the hospital, and this is becoming her only identity. It really made me think about what was I condoning by thanking her all the time for all this hard work. Mm-hmm. I was kind of missing out on hmm, is this right? Mm-hmm. Should she be doing this, and why is she doing this? And um, I think we we do implicitly condone the types of behaviors that make our life easier mm-hmm. and that we think are good for patient care, but they may not be good for resident wellness mm-hmm. and sustainability in practice. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, just got me thinking. So are you planning on doing any research on this? or? Yeah, that's still part of a lot of what I, when I teach about professionalism is about looking, so it's, it's again about looking past the behavior, mm-hmm. what's driving the behavior. Mm-hmm. It's easier and often more necessary to do that when the behavior is, you know, something bad or egregious. Mm -hmm. But when the behaviors are sort of good, we don't tend to think about, is it too good? Like, Mm -hmm. what's going on there? Is this too much of a good thing? So we just have to always be aware of how we're judging other people. And the assumptions and inferences we make based on their behaviors may not always be what we think they are. So we have this concept of professionalism Mm -hmm. as behaviors along with intentions in a specific context, right? Mm -hmm. Where do you think the field is going moving forward? Is there more self-reflection coming into hospitals or uh, are you now looking more at the intentions or Mm -hmm. what's sort of the next steps? Because I feel like you've come a long way in the last 
15 years, mm-hmm. I guess. And where is it going now? Where is the field going? That's a, It's a good question because I don't know that it's actually moving rapidly in any mm-hmm. particular direction right now. You're just now. finding out a lot more. There was a lot, a huge flurry of activity in professionalism assessment around the time that I was, like my first paper came out in 2000. Mm-hmm. It was called Context, Conflict, and Resolution. Resolution. It was all about like, hey, let's look at the context in which these behaviors occur. And let's look at this idea of when you have two equally worthy values that come into conflict, how do you deal with those and how do you then assess how someone came to a decision to act? I particularly liked the OSCE part of it. Oh, yeah. There was like a particular, there was an example, um, I think it was just in brackets, but I actually laughed out loud. So in terms of finding like, you're really, you're not going to find clear lapses of professionalism unless a medical student actually puts a patient in a headlock to yes. prevent them from running away. <laughs> I think that might have actually happened. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. In a psychiatry, Anyways, right, Oscar. Yeah, right. I, I thought it was really funny. Yeah. I was like, I'm doing my PhD in the wrong field because yes. this, is, this is hilarious <laughs> to read. Uh, I'm glad it was amusing. Yeah. We also try to come up with really catchy titles for our articles. I think we are still looking at professionalism probably the same way as we were 10 or 15 years ago, since we kind of shifted towards let's look at behaviors, but we definitely are encouraging. It's a good thing you raised about reflection. Reflection is now for better or for worse, mandatory in the pre-clerkship and clerkship curriculum. So right from the first few weeks of medical school, students are learning how to sit and think and reflect, think about their behaviors, their actions, think about the actions of other people, uh, think about their role, their professional identity that's starting to grow from being a lay person to being a physician. There's certainly issues when you force people to write stuff mm-hmm. down. They may not do it in a very genuine way. And marking and grading other people's reflections may have some issues there. But at least the process, giving giving time in the curriculum for reflection and getting people into the habit of reflecting, I think is just great. And it's also a really fun course to uh, to be a, a tutor for. And so you've actually written a book on professionalism. Mm-hmm. In yes, thank you for mentioning yes. that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so do you want to talk a little bit about the in- impetus for the book? Yeah. So what we did is, um, so that was a really amazing experience. My former department chair, Wendy Levinson, had been the head of the American Board of Internal Medicine, and we had both been involved with the ABIM. And... We were approached by one of the um, publishers to write a book on professionalism because we had been writing a fair bit. And we co-authored with Fred Hafferty, who's a medical sociologist who really was the first person to write about the hidden curriculum in medicine, and Catherine Lucy, who's uh, at UCSF and uh, the dean for medical education. And Sorry, so, can you clarify the hidden curriculum? Oh, yeah, the hidden curriculum. That refers to... You know, the stuff that isn't in your formal curriculum and course guides and course materials and lectures, we use that to refer to lessons that are learned that weren't explicitly intended. It's often thought of in in a negative way. In a lecture, let's say you would learn all about how important it is to take a good, complete history and sit down at the patient's bedside and spend an hour and all of that. And then you go on the wards and you see your attending come in, stand at the foot of the bed, spend five minutes asking six yes or no questions and walking out of the room, you may learn that, hmm, maybe that's how you do a history. Maybe what they taught us in class isn't what you really do. So it's a little bit about becoming more cynical as you go along. Often, often it is. So what we did is we decided to write the book in a way that really reinforces the idea that professionalism should be thought of as a competency like any other competency that we expect medical students 
to learn during their medical training. We don't expect you to come in with a full knowledge of how the heart works and how to listen to heart sounds. Why do we expect you to come in knowing how to behave professionally in a context in which most people have never actually set foot? So we, we made it a very educationally themed book. So every chapter is written with lots of case examples and cases to work through, the theory behind why certain things are the way they are, and practice cases and questions. And it was really intended for anyone to read from medical students up to deans of medical schools and um, organizations interested in professionalism. And we've had amazing feedback from the book. And in fact, we've approached and were successful in getting a series in JAMA mm-hmm. that's focused. Yeah, the JAMA yeah. Professionalism series, which has been really, really uh, an awesome experience as well. We took some of the cases from the book or very similar ones, because trust me, we had way more case material than we could ever put in one book. Yeah. And we said, look, you know how you do those clinical case challenges? Like, what would you do with a man, with a PSA of whatever value? Mm-hmm. Let's do them with professionalism case challenges because everyone faces these. And we did it on a trial basis, and we wrote some cases that have, you know, multiple choice answers, and you have to kind of think about what would be the most optimal thing to do and sort of writing about what why certain responses may be more optimal than others. There's never any single right or wrong because there's so much that depends on the context and the people involved. And it's had an amazing, it's had a really, really terrific response, like thousands of views and downloads and we're hoping to continue that now. We have cases that are based on medical students, physicians mm-hmm. in practice, interprofessional cases. Do you want to talk a little bit about, pick your favorite and maybe elaborate? Yeah, my favorite. Ooh, but it's like choosing between your children. Um, <laughs> one, I think one of my favorites is one where a fellow physician asks you for a prescription. And in the JAMA case, it's a prescription for an antidepressant. And as an internist, that's not my area of practice, so that's not something that's happened to me. But it's just such a common thing that people will say, oh, you're a doctor, can you just write me a prescription for? And it could be a friend, a neighbor, your administrative assistant, a nurse on the ward. It's just, it's so common. And it puts physicians in a really awkward position because we're in medicine because we like to help. Mm -hmm. We want to help people feel better. Uh, We want to alleviate suffering, but if you're not my patient, I really shouldn't be prescribing to you. And the guidelines all say it's bad, it's dangerous, never prescribe for people that aren't your patients. But if you talk to physicians, almost everyone has done it at one time or another and uh, maybe feel okay about it, but often don't feel good about it, but felt like they couldn't say no based on who was asking them. So we chose that because it's such a common dilemma Mm -hmm. and it doesn't have a very easy resolution because telling people what they should or shouldn't do, um, again, it sometimes goes against our, mm-hmm. our nature as being in a, in a healing profession. And what did the experts say? The experts were really clear that you shouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. And our College of Physicians and Surgeons in Ontario has very explicit guidelines that you should only do it if a few conditions are met. One is it's a true emergency and there's no other physician around to, to do it or if it's also very, very minor and unlikely to cause harm. So, you know, the the typical example is like a kid that has really bad conjunctivitis or pink eye or whatever needs antibiotic drops. And everyone knows what it is, although now there's some controversy over whether or not you need the drops, but Mm -hmm. at the time it was written was before that new guideline came out. 
that's like, it's so minor. It's so harmless. Yeah. You know, everyone knows you could probably do it and, and save them a trip to the hospital. Yeah. Um, if you're out in cottage country and there's no one else around to do it and all the clinics are closed, you know. But, you know, we, we get asked all the time. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. So, so that was a really wonderful result of the book, actually. And are there articles that come out every month, every... There's, there was a hiatus. Um, we've submitted a few more, waiting to hear back from the editor. Nice. You know, sort of some more, um, more subtle cases that we're working on. We really were trying to make them not egregious things that anyone could say there's a definite yes or a definite no. It's not about things like stealing money or sleeping with your patients or these things that you mm-hmm. think like, no, of course, like that's, that's no. Yeah. yeah that's a hard no. <laughs> yeah. But the more subtle things, the, the, all of, all of the things that we've been talking about that can occur to you in practice. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about the project that you guys are collaborating on um, in relation to assessing medical podcasts, in particular the rounds table? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm working with a wonderful group of individuals. So Dr. Ginsburg is one of them. Uh, we have a medical student working with us, Sarah Malecki, who took the lead on this, which was great to work with someone who hadn't experienced qualitative research before. But essentially, the creators of the rounds table were looking at how effective their podcast was. And as part of that, they wanted to take a survey of their listeners and talk to them about really what they enjoyed about the podcast. So it was Amol Verma at the time who was the host of the rounds table and now is one of their, um, I think he's sort of the faculty mentor and now uh, Kieran Quinn, who is the host now and some of the original collaborators on the podcast wanted to get together and look at what makes a podcast effective. And so we sat and we talked a little bit about the methodology that would be appropriate. um, And we designed this qualitative study. We used a constructivist grounded theory methodology to really look at how podcasts are used in continuing professional development in medicine and for medically related fields. It doesn't have to just be uh, doctors, although a lot of doctors did respond to our sort of call for participants. And Sarah, our our wonderful medical student, took the lead in interviewing people who listen to the rounds table. And so we use the rounds table as the start and the discussion of our questions, but it allowed us to gather results that then were uh, we were able to sort of transfer outside of just the rounds table. It became a larger discussion about podcast use in professional development. And can you elaborate a little bit more on the specific methodology, the constructive grounded theory uh, methodology that you used? Yeah, absolutely. So we wanted to really delve into how and why people use podcasts in their professional development. And so we thought qualitative methodology would be a great way to do that. And by using constructivist grounded theory, we didn't have a pre-existing framework in mind about how and why podcasts are used because that doesn't exist. And so it allowed us to keep a very open mind when we were doing our data analysis to not have any sort of preconceived notions around what we were expecting to find in the data uh, and therefore hoping to build a theoretical framework out of our results. And I do think we were able to do that with, with what came of our, of our interviews. I think it's really great that with, in particular, that research project, but I think in a lot of the types of research that you do incorporates how we've been using technology to impact clinical practice and education. I think you had published something a few years back about the use of Twitter, and I thought that was really interesting. Do you want to touch maybe a little bit about that? Sure, yeah. I love Twitter. Um, So I got involved in Twitter uh, several years ago, and I worked with a colleague of mine, Teresa Chan, who's incredibly uh, proliferative and, and really interested in social media media to make a bit of a primer on how to use Twitter in terms of medical education and how to get onto it because I found when I started 
I had a lot of my friends ask me, hey, how are you using this? And I use it in a purely professional sense. I use it to keep up to date with the medical literature. I use it to keep up to date with cool topics and see what people are talking about in medicine and medical education. And so I really found it was something that was easy to integrate into my everyday life and uh, a little bit addictive. So I, found I spent a lot of time on Twitter, but then I we wrote the article with the intention of making it a little bit easier for people who didn't see Twitter as something they could use in a professional sense. I think that's definitely so fascinating because research and, and the medical world and the world in general moves so quickly. And so Twitter is a really great way to gain access really quickly to um, new information that's coming out. Absolutely. And I find that it's often the first place I go to when there's a big trial that's published or, you know, I'm at a conference. That's when I'm using Twitter the most because I want to see what people are talking about. And I found it really useful as I was heading into a career in medical education to start understanding how people talk about medical education research and the areas that I was interested in. So to sort of become part of this community of practice that I really didn't feel like I belonged in, but that I was hoping to join. And now I I feel like I'm more comfortable using Twitter and I can join this community and be part of this community. Um, So I always encourage my medical students, my trainees and my residents to, to get onto Twitter. Speaking of Twitter, do you have a Twitter handle that our listeners can follow? Absolutely. So it's at L Melvin MD. And any other social media platforms or Twitter's the main one? Twitter's. That's it. Okay, great. <laughs> well, thank you so much for sitting down with us and chatting with us today. It was really great. Thanks so much for having me. Just one final question. So you've been, yeah. So you're, she's wiping her brow, everyone, <laughs> just so everybody knows. She's like, I'm ready to get out of here. So you've talked a lot about, you know, you followed what you liked and you didn't do what you didn't like, which was clearly wet lab work. So to all the PhD students out there who are suffering in the labs, she doesn't like that. No, but I would like to say I am grateful every day that there's people that love to do the things that I don't. And I'm sure there's people that would say like, oh my gosh, qualitative research, that is so messy and unwieldy and there's no way Mm -hmm. I would ever do it. Be glad there's people like me. Yeah. And we're very grateful, obviously. <laughs> so, so you've talked a lot about about following your passions and um, not doing what you don't like. What's sort of next for you? I know. So you've even done analyses on podcasts, actually. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so when you look at your next research project, you just look and say, "That's something I really, I'm really interested in, and I'm going to write a grant and I'm going to do that." Hundred percent. Yes. Yeah. Is I that mean, the advice that you would give to <clears throat> budding scientists and budding clinician yeah, educators? Yeah. It's funny. We had a, a faculty development event a few days ago um, when we had about I think 40 or 50 people come and it was all it was called spark your scholarship it was trying to get people to say hey I think I might want to do some education research how do I get started and our table the topic was how to ask a good research question Mm. and the main lessons are start with a problem or an issue and for me it's always like starting with something that's really bugging me Mm -hmm. because I think it's wrong or I don't understand why it is the way it is And those are always, it's just like anyone that's um, a clinician scientist, it's usually something in their clinical world or with their patients that is a mystery or that's really bothering them and they'll go and do research related to that to try to understand it better. Mm -hmm. And so I'm always driven by things in education that really bug me and they're interesting. And I only ever try to do things that I find personally really interesting we ask people like, are you passionate about it? And someone asked me, do you really need to be passionate? I said, well, you have to at least care about it. Mm -hmm. Because research can be a slog. It can become tedious. Even if you love it. 
frustrating. Oh, I'm talking about the stuff you love, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, you hit dead ends and you have to start over and there's disappointments and rejections. But if you really care about what you're doing, there's also these wonderful moments of discovery and like dancing around your lab when you figure something out or when you finish analyzing a huge data set or when you get a paper published and there's those elements of joy to discovery and finding something new or interesting or unexpected in your research. I find those are the the most fun moments. You're like, I had no idea when we were doing these interviews that this is what they were going to mm-hmm. be talking about in their professionalism. And this is now reminding us there's this whole other area we can go next. It's and that so we one get, second of discovery yeah, where you're like the yeah. only person who knows this new yes. piece of information. Yes. yes. Yeah. And it's, and it's, it's exciting. And that's what, that's what keeps you going. Yeah. So if you don't really care about it, you only have the slog and the tedium and not those moments yeah, of joy. Definitely. And one last question. Can people find you on social media? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I'm really visible uh, on the internet. I have my uToronto email Mm -hmm. and my Google Scholar and I'm on Twitter. Mm -hmm. I think it's S. Ginsburg one. But you can put that in. We can link it to the episode page. Absolutely. I would love more followers. Yeah. I'm trying to tweet more and better. (laughs) Okay. So everybody go and follow Dr. Ginsburg. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, such a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website at rawtalkpodcast.com and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our site when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw. You're really, you're not going to find clear lapses of professionalism unless a medical student actually puts a patient in a headlock to yes. prevent them from running away. <laughs>